Welcome to the latest episode of On The Case, this time looking at the long-awaited Supreme Court decision in the combined appeals of, deep breath, Cornerstone Telecommunications Infrastructure Limited versus Compton Beecham Estates Limited, Cornerstone Telecommunications Infrastructure Limited versus Ashlock Limited, and On Tower UK Limited, formerly known as Archiva Services Limited, versus AP Wireless 2 UK Limited. With that hard bit out of the way, hopefully explaining the decision and its implications should be straightforward for my guest, Martin Garner, partner at CMS. Great to speak to you, Martin. Hi, uh, yes, nice to speak to you too, Jess. So first, um, could you just sort of very quickly set uh, a bit of background for us by explaining what um, the Electronic Communications Code is, uh, which is at the centre of these appeals, and how it works? Sure. So um, going back quite a few years, initially telegraph apparatus, which before sort of fixed line <laughs> apparatus and mobile apparatus, could only be placed on land with consent of, of landowners. And it quite quickly materialised that, that we were going to need some legislation. Uh, so basically so that, that the providers of those services could compel landowners to either sell land to them or grant them rights over the land so they could install the equipment and then build a network. Um, and there's a, there's a quote that sort of highlights that historical position where the, where the judgment says that it was not desirable to leave the selection of sites and negotiations to market forces. Mm-hmm. So in, in about 1984, um, a code was introduced in the Telecommunications Act, and that code gave operators rights to apply to court to decide terms and also the right to compel landowners to grant rights to install apparatus and networks. And it also gave the operators a form of security of tenure, which is quite similar to the 54 Act, mm-hmm. which we obviously have a good working knowledge of and practice of um, in the UK. Uh, well, sorry, in England, but not Scotland. Um but the, oddly, despite that old code being put into, into force in, in 1984, it was very rarely used. Um, and operators and landowners actually, in most cases, agreed commercial terms without using the code powers. And it wasn't quite clear, really, why it wasn't used. Um, but the outcome of that was that the negotiations were quite protracted and the rents reflected a, a commercial use. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... An independent review of the old code was carried out and then the Law Commission published a report in 2013 and those recommendations were largely accepted. And that's when we got the the new code, as we're still calling it um, some five years on. (laughs) And that that came into force in the 28th of December 2017. So so what does it do? Well, essentially, it gives operators the right to apply to court for a bundle of code rights. Um, And they include things like the right to install and keep apparatus on land. Uh, the right to inspect, maintain, alter, repair, upgrade apparatus, um, rights to carry out works in connection with installation and maintenance, uh, connecting to power supplies and others. And those rights can be permanent or they can be temporary. And again, the new code gives an operator a form of security of tenure, meaning that the, the operators can't be removed unless a site provider can establish one of the statutory grounds for termination and gives them quite a long notice period of 18 months. And importantly to this decision under the new code, operators could no longer have dual protection of both the 54 Act and the code. And I'll talk Mm -hmm. about that a little bit later on when we talk about the decision. Sure. Um, And the code also gives operators the right to freely assign in code agreements and upgrade and share apparatus. 
and controversially also completely changed the rent payable for code agreements by establishing this no scheme valuation, uh, which is actually quite similar to the compulsory purchase uh, mm-hmm. powers that local authorities have. And so that, that, that's basically how the code, what the code does. And, and you ask how, how they exercise. Well, generally to exercise the rights, in most cases, the operator has to serve a code notice seeking the conferral of the code rights. And if they can't reach agreement with the site provider, um, the operator can then apply to the upper tribunal to compel uh, the code rights being conferred or to determine the terms of a code agreement if they can't reach an agreement on them. Mm-hmm. And since that new code was introduced, uh, it, it's kept uh, the upper tribunal very busy uh, yeah. with uh, many yeah. disputes between telecommunications operators and landowners uh, yeah. over the rights to install apparatus and, uh, as you pointed out, the, the rent to be paid. Now, these cases can appear to be pretty dry and technical. And as uh, people may have detected from the beginning, they, they can uh, appear to have very similar names. Um, but the implications can be pretty major, can't they, um, when it comes to uh, 5G rollout and the massive importance of telecoms in the modern world, uh, particularly post-pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I I couldn't agree more on on uh, several several uh, points there. Actually, um, absolutely correct. The upper tribunal has been incredibly busy. Um, I think that's been the case for quite a few reasons. I mean, number one, it's really quite rare in the legal world to get a brand new piece of legislation with such mm. far-reaching powers and consequences. And uh, for me, as a litigator, that is that is a dream. Um, and um, if you think about comparing it to something like the the 54 Act, the Northern Tenant 54 Act, and then we're coming up to nearly 70 years of case law mm. uh, there. And, and actually what you find is that many of the complex issues of how that legislation is interpreted and how it operates have actually already been decided by mm. the courts. So the 54 Act procedure is still is, is fairly smooth now, uh, although we still have issues popped up. But here, you know, we talk about the new code, we're actually only five years in, and, mm. and that's actually quite a small period, a short period of time, actually, in in terms of a piece of new legislation. So I think that there's going to be much more to come um, as, a result, as a result of that, as various different parts of the code, the interpretation of them, the operation of those parts are is, is tested. Mm-hmm. And I also think that it, it probably might, talked about the synergy with the, with the 54 Act, I think it could become quite similar to the 54 Act in the future as there is more and more apparatus rolled out. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the second point, I think, why the tribunal has been so busy is, is that they're under a statutory obligation to, to decide the referrals within six months, uh, which is not a litigator's dream. <laughs> um, it's a very short time period to get um you know expert evidence together witness statements together uh, you're talking about really really fast uh and short mm. periods between the various directions um and that has meant that the cases have been dealt with in- incredibly quickly and we've sort of had these rapid fire succession of of um of cases being referred to the upper tribunal and then court of appeal yeah and uh indeed uh turning to the appeals in in this case they're, they're the first yeah. disputes to make it all the way to the supreme court is that right yeah that's right uh we've had a few referrals up to the court of appeal um but these cases are the first three that have been referred to the supreme court uh and interestingly two of the appeals came from the court of appeal 
but the on-tower decision has actually leapfrogged the mm-hmm. Court of Appeal um, due to the fact that actually the three appeals uh, relied on the t- determination of the same the same legal principle on a specific part of how the code works. Yes. Uh, as a result, I mean, this decision has been uh, very highly anticipated. So, so what exactly was the Supreme Court being asked to decide? OK, here, here's where we're going to get a, a little bit technical. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll, I'll try and summarise um, the 50-page judgment in, in as simple terms, <laughs> simple terms as I can. <laughs> so, um, so the three appeals really concern how the code works in combination with the transitional provisions. Mm. And the main issue is whether and how an operator who's already got apparatus installed on a site can acquire new or better code rights from the site provider. Right. And, and at the heart of that issue is paragraph nine of the code. And I'm going to read it out because it's really important. Um, and it says a code right in respect of land may only be conferred on an operator by an agreement between the occupier of the land and the operator. So just turning to the three the three appeals in turn. So in Compton uh, B Chomp or Bow Chomp, not really quite sure how how you pronounce that. <laughs> no, one. we've never we've uh, never been sure. No, um, so that's the leading case, and I think it's the case in which the others were decided, and it concerned a mast held by Vodafone. Uh, Vodafone had a lease which expired back in 2015, and they then occupied under a tenancy at will, and they then started to share the site. Uh, with Telefonica in around 2016. So, um, and I think it's important to, to to note there that Cornerstone is actually a joint venture between Telefonica and Vodafone, so that they're JV partners. So the tenancy at will uh, was terminated by Compton Beauchamp, who's the site provider in, in 2017. And then the old code actually stopped uh, the, the site provider from being able to remove the apparatus. Um, and Compton, so the site provider then served a notice on Vodafone um, under the old code requiring Vodafone to remove the apparatus and then Vodafone then served a note, counter notice which prevents the removal of that equipment without court order. And then interestingly is where, where the whole crux of this case gets it's quite, I think a little bit odd actually, it mm. wasn't Vodafone that pursued its rights under the new code when the new code came into a force in 2017. Instead, Cornerstone, rather than Vodafone, served a notice on, on Compton B. Chomp under um, paragraph 20 of the code, basically seeking longer term rights. Um, and they also were seeking temporary rights as well under the new code. And uh, Compton B. Trump refused to grant the rights and then Cornerstone then applied to the upper tribunal and the upper tribunal dismissed uh, the referral due to the interpretation of that paragraph that I just mentioned before which is paragraph nine basically saying that it didn't have jurisdiction to impose an agreement as Vodafone um, the the party with the lease mm-hmm. and not Compton B. Trump um, the sort of site provider the freeholder was the occupier of the land and that code rights can only be conferred by the occupier of the land under paragraph nine. Mm-hmm. And that decision sort of supported by the general legal principle that, you know, it's impossible for someone to enter into a contract with themselves. Yeah. Uh, so and then, then that that decision by the tribunal was then upheld by the Court of Appeal and then went straight up to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. 
And then you had a number of sort of knock-on decisions as a result of that first case. So the Ashlock appeal had quite similar facts, uh, but this time what we're dealing with is it 1954 at protected lease. And again, you've got Vodafone as the tenant, the lease expired, Vodafone remains in occupation under a, a continuation tenancy. A new uh, leasehold, long leaseholder comes in um, and to try and get around the Compton B. Trump decision, Cornerstone actually took a formal assignment of Vodafone's continuation tenancy this time. They took an assignment of the lease so that they had the direct landlord and tenant relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cornerstone then served another a paragraph 20 notice seeking a new code agreement. Um, and in that, they the, the site provider, uh, which was AP Wireless, uh, then relied on two arguments to tap challenge the referral. Basically, first of all, they said that following Compton v. Trump, Cornerstone was again prevented from applying under paragraph 20 because, again, it was the occupier of the site. Um, and secondly, that the transitional provisions applied, which meant that Cornerstone um, could only apply for new code rights under the 54 Act and not under the code. Because as I said before, the new code separated um, basically prevented operators from having dual protection, dual security of tenure under the 54 Act and dual dual security of tenure under the code. Mm-hmm. And again, um, the upper tribunal concluded that an operator that was in occupation uh, under an agreement is in the same position as an operator uh, under an agreement made under the 54 Act mm-hmm. or under part two of the 54 Act and that therefore... Um, it can't have doesn't have the power to confer um, the code rights mm-hmm. because it is it is in occupation it is the occupier. So the court of appeal again upheld that decision, referring back to the Compton B Trump decision, and decided that even if Cornerstone as applicant under paragraph twenty wasn't treated as the occupier, it didn't follow that the site provider mm-hmm. or AP Wireless here could also be treated as the occupier Mm -hmm. because it didn't have very much control of the site. Um, Cornerstone did because they had the lease. And the Court of Appeal also went on to confirm that the effect of the transitional provisions was that, again, as I've mentioned before, the operator um, has to apply under the 54 Act to renew that agreement and not the code. It doesn't have the choice. Uh, and so the final appeal is the the Ontow uh, case, and that sort of rode on the back of both Compton B. Trump and the Ashlock appeals, and it's leapfrogged from the upper tribunal straight to the Supreme Court. So here we were dealing with three contracted out leases of uh, telecoms apparatus that expired in 2016. And following the two Court of Appeal decisions that we've had in Compton B. Trump and Ashlock, the upper tribunal recognised that this was going to be an interconnected case in order to preliminary mm-hmm. hearing of two issues and the, the first question was did on tower occupy under a subsisting agreement and two did the tribunal again have the jurisdiction to impose an agreement under paragraph 20 and on issue one although the tribunal held that on tower had a tenancy at will it wasn't in writing and therefore didn't fall within the meaning of a subsisting agreement um, and on issue two again referring to ashlock and compton beecham the Court of Appeal had already restrictively interpreted the code and basically that it didn't have jurisdiction under any circumstances to oppose an agreement on an operator in occupation of the site because of paragraph nine. Mm-hmm. 
um, even if in this case it arguably didn't even have code code rights anymore because they'd expired. Uh, and that's 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 basically the three appeals. So they're all yep. slightly technical but very similar facts that all sort of rely on this this paragraph nine provision about the fact that the code right can only be conferred on an operator but by an agreement between the occupier and the operator is who was the status of the occupier at the time and and in all three cases it was argued that the operator was was in occupation as a result of its equipment and the crucial question uh, how did the supreme court handle these issues and the, and the the application of of uh, paragraph 9 and, and and what did it rule on these on these cases yeah so as you said the the three appeals focus on the meaning of the word occupier mm. Uh, in paragraph nine of the code. So the Supreme Court's approach was not to define the word occupier and then allow that definition to mandate how the code works, but actually to work out how the regime um, is intended to work and then consider what meaning should be given to the word occupier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Supreme, Supreme Court decided that the word occupier has different meanings depending on the context in which it's used. And actually that it was inherent in paragraph nine of the code that the operator who seeks a code right over an existing site must be different from the actual occupier of the land. And you know, as part of that decision making process, it, the court held that it wouldn't make any sense that the, the mechanism for the creation of all these code rights would basically be unavailable in relation to numerous sites across the country where the operator has installed apparatus in such a way that it becomes the occupier of the land. Mm. So any site where a site, an operator has a lease and is therefore treated to be occupier would basically be barred from using these provisions of the code uh, because they would be the occupier. Um, and so it, it, it reversed that unusual um, approach that 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 restriction that limitation that very restrictive interpretation um, of paragraph nine of the code from the court of appeal decisions and I think the key paragraph in the judgment um, which I've highlighted here it says where an operator requests or applies for code rights under paragraph 20 of the new code it is not to be regarded as the occupier of the site for the purposes of paragraph nine merely mm. because it's got apparatus installed on that site because uh, to hold otherwise would, in my judgment, frustrate the way the code should operate. So basically, um, where you've got an operator in occupation and they've got apparatus on the site, their occupation is disregarded for the purposes of determining whether they are an occupier for the purposes of paragraph nine. Hmm. Um, and the court also made a determination on on on, on another point and basically decided that um, the court, the operators are also able to reach a consensual agreement or apply for additional code rights during the term of an existing agreement. And there were a couple of points that came out of the decision as well that sort of qualified that somewhat. Mm-hmm. So despite the court saying that that paragraph 20 could be used by an operator in, in situ, it can only be used to impose additional code rights and it can't be used to modify the existing rights that are already conferred. So that's generally to protect the fact that parties should be kept to their existing bargain. So you can ask for new rights, new code rights that you don't already have, but you can't go back and say, I want to modify this existing code right. 
that I already have to change that. Um, it also decided that an operator can only renew a 54 Act protected subsisting agreement under the 54 Act, and it can't renew under the code. Uh, and it also decided that the code doesn't require that um, all occupation of any operator with apparatus on land can be disregarded. It's only the occupation of the operator seeking the new code rights mm -hmm. that can be disregarded. So overall, that I mean, that seems like a, a fairly common sense, purposive approach uh, to the, the the key issues between yeah. um, landowners and operators. But the the outcome for the the particular appeals uh, in the case is, I believe, somewhat mixed and and slightly complicated. I don't think we need to go into too much detail on the on the specifics, but it is a bit of a mixed bag, isn't it? It, it is a bit of a mixed bag. I think that the key point being that the, the key case, the Compton B. Trump decision, um, that, that appeal still failed mm. um, because the Supreme Court's decision um, didn't mean that an occupation by any operator with apparatus installed on the site would be disregarded. And so there, as Vodafone was the occupier and it wasn't Cornerstone, uh, the appeal was still dismissed. Mm. Uh, so that that was quite unusual. The on-tower appeal was still successful because that 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 then worked. And the Ashlock appeal has actually sort of been referred back for further submissions because mm. it wasn't quite clear whether they needed to continue under the 54 Act or whether they were seeking more code rights. So, yeah, a bit of a mixed bag, although I've seen um, in the press that Cornerstone are treating it as a loss of the battle, but a win of the war. And I'd, I'd agree probably with that interpretation. Yeah, I think in, ter in terms of the wider point of principle, uh, I imagine... It will be operators who are happier with the result than landowners overall. Yeah, definitely. I, I think what what you'll see now is some operators sort of now trying to seek these additional or new code rights where they've got outdated agreements, hmm. uh, perhaps on old terms that don't really reflect the full suite of rights that you get under the new code. So I think I agree. Yes, that the operators are going to be largely happy, although you know the the Supreme Court has still offered some protection for site providers in that. You can't just sort of go back and, and change the bargain that you've already agreed. Hmm. And I think um, it will also help sort of the sector generally by removing some of the uncertainty around how these provisions worked. and Because uh, it's closed what was quite a large loophole in, mm -hmm. in how the code uh, worked. And you, you mentioned earlier on that, that there's, there's still plenty to be decided and there remain sort of other important issues under the new code. Do you foresee... Uh, more telecoms cases making their way to the highest court? Yeah, I think potentially, yes. I mean, for the reasons I've pointed out before, I, I, you know, it's it's a very extensive piece of legislation and we don't have, um, there will there will definitely be areas of it that are still up for discussion or that we don't have guidance on. I mean, one example is we don't have a definition of what primary purpose means. Mm -hmm. uh, not defined in the Act itself. There is no uh, case law on it. And I think that's going to be quite essential. Well, it is essential to working out whether the code applies or not. Uh, so just thinking a little bit out loud, that's going to be quite relevant to something like the data centre market rather mm -hmm. than mobile masts. Uh, I also think as the rollout increases and infrastructure gets smaller, we're going to need more sites. Yeah. And that could potentially just maybe mean that there might be more disputes or parties requesting the tribunal to decide terms. 
And I just think, going back on that, I still think the government missed a bit of an opportunity to improve rollout by contracting out. I've made lots of synergies to the 54 Act um, during this chat, and I still think that if if the if you were able to contract out the code, operators would find site providers more willing mm. to get their apparatus on mass because all they want is the certainty that they can get it back at the end, at the end of the agreement. But mm-hmm. um, you know the government at the moment is not prepared to to explore a contracting out regime similar to the 54 Act. Uh, well, maybe that that's something that we'll we'll come on to dis- discussion at a later date. And and mm. uh, sound, it sounds like with those other issues you pointed out, there's, there's there might be plenty more to uh, to talk about uh, on future podcasts. Um, but uh, for today, uh, many thanks, Martin, for joining me to discuss uh, this important decision. Uh, you have been listening to On the Case from EG.